Hi, everyone. This is Mona Charon. Thanks for tuning in to Beg to Differ. I want to just give you a heads up that in this episode, we had a little bit of a mic problem for the first 20 minutes. So my voice will be very faint um, and a little difficult to hear. We fixed it in the latter part of the podcast and uh, hope you'll just bear with us. Sorry about that. Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. Not that far, we're basically center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I write a newspaper column. And we are joined by Damon Linker of The Week, Bill Galston of Brookings and The Wall Street Journal, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. And this week we are delighted to welcome our special guest, Megan McArdle, columnist for the Washington Post. Actually, is it Megan or Megan? I am always, it's Megan. I always say it wrong. I'm so sorry. So no, it's one of those Megan. names that there's too many ways to pronounce <laughs> it, too many ways to spell it, so I'm easy. Okay, thank you. I, I always, when people always mispronounce my last name and I always say, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know. um, okay, so this past week has dished up a huge dose of news, as usual, impeachment news. House Judiciary Committee holding lengthy sessions to permit each member to have his or her say um, late into the night. Vote is expected uh, later today. The Justice Department Inspector General released his report on the origins of the Russia investigation, and the revised NAFTA trade deal seems close to a vote. So, um, we can all safely assume that the uh, impeachment will, um, that the Judiciary Committee will forward this to the full House and that the full House will, on a party line vote with the exception of Justin Amash, uh, who was a former Republican, uh, will, will approve it. It will then move to the Senate. So, Bill, you um, had an interesting column this week about what kind of rules will prevail in the Senate mm-hmm. for the trial. And um, I haven't thought about that in a really long time. I have to confess, I don't even remember the Bill Clinton trial very well. The only thing that, that stands out in my mind is that William Rehnquist, in a nod to Gilbert and Sullivan, put three stripes on his robes. And when asked uh, later about what he did, he said, uh, what was it? I didn't... Uh, I." I did nothing in particular, and I did it very well. Right. <laughs> so this time it will be Chief Justice Roberts uh, will be presiding. But you point out there are rules about changing the rules. So let's start there. Well, I I, I don't want to bore too many people for too long. Oh, no, getting... I think everyone's been waiting oh, for yes, the madcap excitement breath. of parliamentary <laughs> procedure. But, uh, but I just assigned myself the task of trying to figure out, well, this thing that is certain to happen, what is it going to look like? Mm-hmm. What does history tell us? What do the rules tell us, et cetera? And the answer is not much and not much. Uh, there are some standing rules, and they are remarkably precise with regard to forms of address, how different sorts of documents should be phrased and almost totally nonspecific on the crucial questions of how the procedures of the Senate trial actually operate. 
And that is why uh, things ground to a halt on January 7th of 1999, uh, the first day of the Bill Clinton trial, when things opened up and uh, the Chief Justice swore everybody in, all 100 Senate jurors. They were then they were then supposed to summon the president to appear, but they were stuck because they hadn't adopted rules. They hadn't adopted rules because they hadn't agreed on rules, and there were all these different drafts floating around. And uh, of course, uh, Trent Lott, who was the Senate Majority Leader, you know, held fifty-five cards in his hand, and Tom Daschle only had forty-five in his hand, and so in principle. Senator Lott could simply have said, you know, we've got the votes, we'll get our way. But he didn't really have the votes. Uh, he had seven vulnerable members who were up for re-election that year who had made it very clear to him that they didn't want to be associated with what would look like a partisan kangaroo court. Uh, and in addition, and this is the, this is the old-fashioned point that I underscore in my piece – the Senate Majority Leader and the Senate Majority Minority Leader, Trent Lott and Tom Daschle, actually had some concern for the institution of which they were temporary residents. Uh, and, you know, Daschle talks very movingly. They decided that the only way they could get this done, rather than having all these competing proposals fly around, they would get together the next morning in an informal committee of the whole in the old Senate chamber, where, as Daschle reminded them and subsequently the rest of the country, you know, Daniel Webster and Henry Clay and John Calhoun and others had practiced the trade of being a senator. And lo and behold, the final gridlock was broken when Phil Graham made a proposal and Ted Kennedy said, that's a great idea, I agree. So everybody said, yay, we're done. And then, this is something I didn't put in my column. <laughs> uh, as they walked out, you know, Lot put his arm around Daschle and said, uh, well, it's great that we have an agreement. Uh, Tom, do you remember what we agreed to? <laughs> and Daschle looked at him and said, uh, no, I thought you did. <laughs> They didn't have anybody taking notes. Well, <laughs> apparently on this on <coughs> on this last point, the great Phil Graham, uh, Phil Graham, Ted Kennedy uh, agreement, they didn't really understand what the two of them had agreed to. They were just thrilled that they had agreed to something. <laughs> something. But but in all seriousness, had it not been for a last minute surge of statesmanship, there could have been a procedural train wreck at the beginning of the Clinton trial because there would be no rules of procedure. Right. Now, uh, and I'll, the last point here, then as now, the crucial question had to do with the calling of witnesses and the handling of witnesses once called. And to some extent, they kicked the can down the road, but at the same time, they came up with a workable procedure, namely that the witnesses called would be deposed first. 
the videos would be reviewed, and then and only then would it be decided whether they would appear in person before the full Senate. And there were some partisan votes on witnesses, yay or nay. It was not sweetness and light, but it worked. And the Senate was not disgraced, and neither was the country. Well, Megan, um, do you <laughs> expect an outbreak of statesmanship and compromise in 2019? Uh, I can't say that I do, but I do think— I'm shocked, <laughs> shocked. <laughs> to find gambling going on in there, um, if only— uh, yeah, I, I think that it's very clear that since the Clinton impeachment, there has been a real decline in on both sides in the level of care about the institution rather than kind of making moves that will give you a temporary grasp on power um, and which then enable your opposition when they get into power to do things that you are so outraged by that the next time you get into power, you've got to, you know, make it worse. Um, and I think that's been going on for quite some time. I think the most notable area is judges, but I don't think it's the only area. Um, that said, I think there are still considerations like Mitch, you know, some of Mitch McConnell's members, not a lot at this point. I mean, the, the other big difference is that the Senate is much more partisan than it was. Um, and so he's going to have less of that consideration, but he still does have to consider that, you know, his his majority does depend on people who have to get reelected. Um, in states where support for impeachment may be higher. But I think a lot of this really depends on where the public ends up. About a month ago, I sketched out a column in which I pointed out how Trump could actually be removed by the Republican Senate. It entirely hinged on voters on public sentiment going to 60% for removal. I still don't think that's impossible because, I mean, with Nixon, you really see this strange pattern where, like, right up to very shortly before he resigns, he's got the majority of the public saying, don't impeach him. And then it just kind of shifts overnight. And these things tend to be subject to to what Malcolm Gladwell dubbed tipping points, right, is what Tom Schelling before Malcolm Gladwell dubbed tipping points, um, I should say. Thank you. Um, Malcolm Gladwell stole this tipping point. Yes. Uh, I think he does, like, mention him briefly in the acknowledgments, but it's kind of buried and no one reads the acknowledgments except the people who might be mentioned in them. So Tom Schelling at least found out that that he'd been giving My late former colleague thanks you for the mention. Um, (laughs) But, you know, these things are subject to these weird tipping points where, like, everything looks one way and then it suddenly goes the other. And this goes back to um, something called preference falsification, right, where um, we hold the – I love when you talk economics. This is is more like social uh, social science. But it's this idea that we hold a lot of our beliefs. We like to think that we all derived all of our beliefs just from first principles and rational logic, and this is total nonsense. In fact, we hold a lot of our beliefs because people like us hold beliefs like that. And that sort of has to be. If you think about it, you can maybe be an expert in like two or three things. And for the rest of it, you just kind of have to borrow. So who do you borrow from? People who agree with you on the two or three things that you really know about, you figure, well, they're obviously smart. (laughs) I should probably just take, you know, take their word for it on other issues. And so um, what can happen is you can get these cascades where if you get uh, sort of bellwethers, bellwethers are the sheeps, the sheep that kind of lead the herd. Suddenly, if the the bellwether is moving, the herd will follow. Um, You get bellwether people in a community who just decide, you know what, I've had enough. 
And I think the only way that that would happen is if evangelicals realize they're going to lose the election. Because so much of the evangelical and and to a lesser extent Catholic calculus has been judges protecting religious liberty, at least he'll protect us. And the problem with that is that if it's clear that there's no way he can win in 2020, well, you're not going to get the judges and you're not going to get the protection. What you are going to do is further sully your kind of reputation, whatever is left of it, uh, for sort of morality by associating it with a prurient, vulgar guy who caters to, you know, racists. Um, whether he's racist himself, I don't know. I can't see into his heart. He certainly doesn't go out of his way to condemn um, people who obviously are. And so I think that there is a scenario in which they decide that they would be better off separating, despite their terror of, um, which I think is not entirely unjustified, of the liberal inquisitors. But that said, I don't see it happening. The polls are not moving. I'm going to come to you in just one okay. second. With, first, I have to make a, um, an interjection about an interjection about <laughs> acknowledgments. Uh, my son is studying for a PhD. And in his first year of study, uh, the class or the, the cohort uh, received an address from a student who was further on, and she instructed them, because they have to read some enormous number of books, just crazy number of books. And so she said, well, I'm going to teach you how to gut a book. That means you read the introduction, right? You scan, you know, a couple of chapters, but you read the acknowledgments, because it's very important to know who they're feuding with, <laughs> whose side they're on, who they're defending, you know, and that that will give the, help you slot this book into <laughs> the proper perspective. That's really interesting. <laughs> well, let, let me take major issue with Megan, whom I admire and like, but um, the problem with your scenario, Megan, first of all, I started this podcast the first week being the optimist. Republicans, they were going to become, they're going to be some patriots out there. They're going to look at this evidence and they're going to do the right thing and they're going to stand for their principles. Well, that hasn't happened. In fact, quite the opposite has happened. But in this instance, I think the biggest problem is this is going to be happening in January. There's no way that in January we're going to think that Donald Trump has no way of being reelected. I mean, I just don't think that we're going to know that because we won't have a Democratic candidate yet. And so I just don't think that can happen that quickly. And so I think we are going to have a Senate uh, trial that there is only one person who could make Trump's removal somewhat more likely, and that is Donald Trump. And if he keeps insisting that he's going to have his day in court and he wants to have his witnesses, I don't think Mitch McConnell is dumb enough to give that to him and he gives every indication that he's going to resist it. But if, you know, I don't know, they've threatened to fire uh, – Trump threatens to fire Elaine Chow or, you know, I don't know what else he's holding over everyone's head. But, you know, yes, I'm sorry, Mitch McConnell's wife. Um, So, you know, unless um, unless Mitch McConnell just decides, you know, 
I don't want to say the, what I was going to say, but, you know, <laughs> forget you this. Give him an hour to this. have this. So. <laughs> right. Yeah, let's just let him do what he's going to do. YOLO. And I'm tired of this. Yeah, yes. I'm tired of this. So let him go do his thing. So just to to, to, to fill in that a little mm-hmm. bit more, if, if he insists on calling the witnesses that the Republicans have talked about, that mm-hmm. would be Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and, you know. Probably Peter Struck and Lisa Page. <laughs> and don't right. forget about the whistleblower. And, and the, the whistleblower, whistleblower. Thank right. Thank you. Exactly. Then that would open the door for, for the Democrats. The Democrats. To bring in Mick Mulvaney. Absolutely. Bolton, right. Cetera, under so, oath. So, yeah, unless we oath. assume those guys are all going to lie under oath, and I mean, I, I used to say, oh, no, they couldn't possibly mm-hmm. do that. I don't believe that anymore. Now, let me just introduce. Uh, well, we haven't heard from Damon, so if we could just hear from Damon and then we'll come back. Okay. To I was just, it was just going to be a wrinkle on a wrinkle. Okay. Here. Go ahead. Wrinkle, <laughs> wrinkle away. Okay. And I actually drilled down on this issue for my column. Suppose one of the White House witnesses refuses to answer questions citing executive privilege. Mm-hmm. Is the Senate the court of last resort serving as the right. trial court right. That's a good question. or is the Supreme Court? Nobody knows the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Believe me, I tried to find out. I can find a case that goes one way and I can find lots of other language pointing in the different direction. <laughs> Talk about chaos where the entire proceeding is held up yeah. pending Supreme Court resolution of an evidence Well, issue. maybe by that time there'll be a Democratic nominee and, you know, Joe Biden. And, I mean, funnily enough, right, so if, you know, I, I think ultimately Mitch McConnell's main desire is to keep as many seats as Senate seats as possible, right? He can't really control the presidential election. He can, to some extent, control that. And he might have an interest in delaying it, first of all, because it keeps several candidates out of campaigning, um, right? They will have to stay while uh, they can't plan too many events. Um, and second of all, because it gives him time to find out, am I going to lose the Senate? What do I need to do to maximize my chance of holding Senate seats? So I think there are some wrinkles. I look, I'm not saying that this is likely. I don't think it is. I think it is less likely at this point than it was when I wrote that column. Um, but I still think it's possible simply because, look, if public opinion got to 60% for removal, they would remove him. Oh, yeah. Right? There's yeah, no – there's that. so yes, – yes, yes. they all hate him. It's not like he has any institutional no, that's loyalty right. that's going to make anyone think, no, no, we can't do that to dear Donald. Um, so the the only question is where does public sentiment go? And I think in that, you know, Trump has been – Unfortunate in his friends, but even more unfortunate in his en- in his enemies. If you look at all of the ways in which all of this has been mishandled, um, they might well be able to impeach him now if people had not gone all in on so many bad theories of why he needed to be impeached long before this. Possibly, um, Damon. I I want to frame this for you <clears throat> in a particular way because of something that you wrote this week. Um, so Megan mentioned liberal inquisitors and. Um, and, and you said, you wrote a column this week where you talked about the um, bad faith of the Republicans, and I certainly will not debate that with you, but I do think that you um, might have slighted a little bit the, the concerns that some Trump voters really do have about the left gaining power and about what they would do with it. And, um, you know, the, the assaults on religious liberty are not fantastical they're not they're not myths i mean they there are real cases uh there adoption agencies that have had to stop uh placing children because they declined to place them with lgbt families and q you know whatever um 
there are, you know, there are many cases where where uh, religious people feel that their um, their rights to to run their organizations as they see fit are under assault. Um, so, is it completely one sided? Oh no, no, not at all. And I didn't mean I didn't mean to imply that it is in the column. The column is a, really about uh, kind of. Uh, on-the-ground political tactics. It's not about kind of the ideological fights between the two parties, where I agree there are definite uh, extreme tendencies within both parties that uh, balance and echo each other in all kinds of ways. My point was simply that the Democrats have a much broader coalition by this point, ideologically speaking, where you actually have a real massive gap between, say, Bernie Sanders voters and, say, a little bit less far out on the left than him. You have Warren, and then you have a bunch of other candidates. You have Buttigieg sort of in the center left, Biden also center left, and then you have Bloomberg, who has managed to buy himself up to about 5% in the polls with a cool 100 million. But that does show that there are at least 5% of people polled among Democrats who, who find his message appealing. That's an amazingly widespread within a single party. And because of that, you get things like Joe Biden making the case, as he repeatedly does, that actually we want Republicans. We don't want people to abandon the Republican Party. We need partners. We need compromise with Republicans. And even apart from the substance of that, my point in the column is simply that the Republicans these days are so kind of uh, whittled down to a kind of far-right rump that they are in the position of of really just kind of doubling, tripling down on absolute partisanship. So there's no concession. There's no sense that, well, yes, maybe Trump did something wrong, and maybe if he just apologized and backed off, then, then maybe uh, this would be better for the party. No, it's always going further. It's, it's uh, you know, supposedly the... Uh, the uh, federal government's top uh, prosecutor in the country, the attorney general... Uh, you know, he, he doesn't even pretend to be kind of above partisanship. He just comes out swinging over and over again, attacking Democrats and the left, defending his president, Donald Trump, against all of these, uh, excuse me, trumped up charges. And it just happens over and over again. So, again, my only point in the column is to say that it's as if the Republicans are coming to the political battlefield, as I put it, with a pistol and a stiletto, and the Democrats show up with high-minded speeches. And it used to be that both parties showed up with high-minded speeches, but it doesn't really work that way anymore. And I think we're seeing that play out in the whole impeachment debate in many ways. I think that's structural, though, to both holding the presidency and uh, the geographic distribution of Democrats, right? Is the Demo for Democrats to get a majority in Congress, they need to hold more marginal seats where they have, where they're where they're really fighting in enemy territory. And so, always when you have a Democratic majority, you've got all of these people who you either have to persuade to take a suicide charge that is going to cost them their seat, or you have to make concessions to them. Um, and that that is where the high-minded speeches are. I think that, you know, when impeachment started, you saw the polls going towards impeachment, which is when I wrote the column saying, I don't know, maybe it'll actually, maybe it'll actually be removed. 
Um, but what's happened now is that you're seeing Democrats are committed as ever. They're at like 85 percent, I think, for uh, impeachment, like very little movement. Uh, but Republicans who had swung up to it and admittedly not very high, I think 16 percent. Um, but independents are also starting to pull back and they're now below a majority. And Democrats have to fight in that territory. So it's not that they're doing this because they're like nicer people. It's oh, doing I this, totally understand that. It's of that they're doing it's that. By structural things. But it yeah. is also true that like the kind of, you know, you really saw this all the time from Democrats um, during the kind of Obama ascendancy. Right. You certainly saw it from the people in, in the activist base and still hear it, frankly, of like this, we're going to we're going to drive them for our enemies before us. Hear the lamentations of our their women and right. sow their fields with salt. There will be no quarter. They will we will slaughter them all. Right. Well, but the whole point um, is that there, there are there are activists on both sides. And my point is that it, effectively the Republicans are an entire activist party now, whereas the Democrats are not. You saw this. You saw Chuck Schumer say this. Right. Right. Oh, after, that's right. after yes. after 2008 it was it, this was 1932 and they were going to have you know the 40 year hegemony coming and therefore it was time to be ambitious and not you know try to compromise with the republicans and that is in fact how they governed for 2 years they did everything with very minimal input from the republicans in fairness they didn't need it they had 60 votes in the senate they had control of the house and they governed as if they did. They did not try to get Republican buy-in. They made these extremely token gestures trying to get bipartisan participation in Obamacare that were sort of like, well, you can choose the font. Um, and then were surprised and disappointed and outraged that Republicans didn't participate. And that was – that is how Washington is now. And you know, Yuval Levin argues that this is because control of the House switches so often that no one wants to make deals anymore. Instead, you know, when, when Democrats held a majority um, for 40, you know, when they basically controlled uh, Congress for most of 40 years, the incentive was they were the majority party and their incentive was to do deals because they knew they would be held responsible if nothing happened. Um, but the Republican incentive was also to do deals because you definitely weren't getting anything done any other way. But now when it's time to do a deal, everyone thinks, well, yeah, sure, I could compromise now and get someone what I want. But maybe if I waited two years and we got control of the whole shebang, I could get everything I want and I could ram what I want down the throats of those jerks on the other side. Um, and that is how Congress is run. And so what you're seeing right now, because Republicans have the presidency, where this tends to weirdly get focused, even though the presidency doesn't have that much power. Um, but you see Republicans acting as if they don't need to cooperate with the other side. If Democrats get back into power, I fully expect that that is how they will act. Um, if they hold the Senate, if they hold the presidency, they will ram judges through with, with no thought of the other side. They will attempt to do as much as they can without any Republican cooperation. And they will talk that way. They will tactically act that way because that is certainly how Harry Reid acted when he was in the majority. That is the incentive that people now have. Harry Reid did a number of things. He um, uh, he dispensed with the filibuster for judges. He uh, um, the I remember vividly. Well, not vividly. I remember dimly that uh, Barack Obama held a uh, so-called bipartisan conference to talk about health care, and he told the Republicans present, <laughs> "Elections, elections have, consequences. have consequences. Too damn bad, <laughs> right?" I mean, Boy, so, I bet the Democrats would love to see that filibuster. <laughs> no, and, and, and then and then they got very upset <laughs> when it turned out the midterm elections also had consequences. Well, yes. but you know, I, I will. I'll get you in one second, Bill. But I have to just say, I'm really glad to hear you say this, Megan, because. 
um, there, the, the, the line that has come down to us is that the Republicans have been sabotaging everything since 1979, and they are completely responsible for the breakdown in comedy. And, and God knows the people who do this podcast have no great uh, sympathy for the current iteration of the Republican Party. But there's just no doubt that it didn't start with the Republicans uh, alone and that the, there was tremendous high-handedness hand, on the part of Obama and the majority Democrats when, when they held all the cards. Okay, Bill, you, you disagree? Um, I would be derelict in my duty if I didn't. Okay. Uh, and, but I don't, want to, I don't want to hijack this conversation into a relitigation of the Obama administration. I really don't. Suffice it to say that there's a different way of telling the story. And if I were just to put one exemplary exhibit on the table. Why did the White House authorize Senator Max Baucus, then head of the Finance Committee, to spend four crucial months in 2009 negotiating with Senate Republicans about the Affordable Care Act when they had the votes all along to do it? Because they wanted to call it a bipartisan bill, and they were willing to offer basically nothing in the way of concessions to get there. But they did. They they really wanted that name on it, right? That is why they did it. It wasn't out of some desire to for institutional comedy or anything else. They wanted Susan Collins or Olympia Snow to come on board so they could say this is a bipartisan effort. And in the end, they weren't willing to offer enough to get to the two most moderate, practically Democrats in the Senate to go along, which tells you just how little they were willing to compromise. As okay. I said, <laughs> I do not want to relitigate, <laughs> no, but only to, only to put down a marker to be argued out in a different, more appropriate Fair. place. Okay. All right. Well, let us, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the USMCA, which to me always looks like it's the Marine Corps, but it's not. <laughs> it's the uh, U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement. It's the uh, what some people are calling NAFTA light. Um, so this looks like it's going to get passed and signed. And uh, you could argue that considering the way Trump campaigned and what he said about NAFTA being the worst disaster ever to befall the country— that this deal is actually getting off relatively lightly. Uh, it is a m modification of NAFTA that is not all that profound. Um, some of the things that were added were things that were necessary because 25 years ago you didn't have e-commerce the way you do now and so on and so forth. Um, um, on the other hand, you could also say that, well, that's fine, but we have done so much psychic damage to the concept of trade and free trade and its benefits that even though they didn't blow up the whole idea, you know, the, the, the trading system in North America, they have maybe critically wounded it. So who wants to go first? Well, I would just say that the reason we're going to have a deal is in part because Donald Trump has to have something to show where he's actually gotten a deal somewhere. And he's, you know, this is the deal maker. This is the art of the deal. And he hasn't had any deals. What, you don't, things are going, you don't think, think things are going so well in North Korea? <laughs> yeah. Isn't right. that, isn't that low-hanging <laughs> yes. oh, yes. fruit? Yeah. I don't know. Those love letters. They're having <laughs> a lover's spat. Let us not forget his tremendous accomplishment in wrestling 
tax cuts from a Republican yes, Congress. Exactly. Oh, Who thought that could have yeah. been done? So at any rate, so Only so that I think genius, that sta- and, very stable genius could have done that. And, and the fact <laughs> is, um, you know, you've got a terrible situation now in Mexico. I mean, you have a state that is had you know for years been having progress in terms of their economy. Now, you know, we're flooding them with uh, the refugees who are trying to get or asylees who are trying to get the United States. Crime is up. I mean, you've got uh, a very left-wing guy who's uh, president now, uh, whom apparently, again, Trump is, you know, Trump seems to just like anybody who says anything nice about him. And, you know, he's acting like Obrador is, you know, really a great guy, and I don't think he is. Um, And they did give a lot of concessions to labor. I mean, you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi had Richard Trumka up there for good reason, because a lot of what they gave were on labor issues. So this is all about Trump just being able to say, well, I, I, I have this great deal, and this is so much better than NAFTA. One thing that interests me is the amount of Republican grumbling and pushback that's occurring. Uh, And in fact, uh, the loudest voice uh, has been, at least the loudest voice that I've heard, has been Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, who's very upset about what I regard as one of the genuine accomplishments of the bill, and that is weakening the protections that the big drug companies have on you know, on so-called biologics. I mean, they had carved out a huge exemption for themselves, and they were going to get many more years of patent protection than was the case for lots of other categories. And uh, the, ne- the negotiations rolled that back. And the drug companies are going to claim, oh, this is the death of innovation. Uh, and if you believe that... <laughs> <laughs> What do you think about the innovation issue, Megan? Uh, I think it's an absolute real issue. Unlike other people, I think that this is probably the biggest issue facing healthcare reform. Is I mean, there's an re- interesting suggestion on Twitter the other day that well, you know, yeah, even if you lose some innovation, the the lives you save by increasing access more than offset that. And the problem with that is that the way patents work, right? Um, is you get between 8 to 15 years, depending on how fast you've developed it once you filed the first, first patent. You can kind of extend that by, like, tweaking it. You know, now we've got extended release formula. Now, but ultimately, you just don't get that much patent life off, uh, off of it. And after that, the cost, the, the price generally falls to the production cost. There are some exceptions, um, usually stemming from one of two problems. One is just a small market. If you can only really, if the market's just too small to support two manufacturers, you can get weird pricing anomalies, right? Um, like but, insulin? Uh, no. So insulin is a different question. <laughs> insulin is a actually a third category that I'll talk about in a minute. Okay. So we're talking about drugs, right? We're talking about pure drugs right now, chemical entities, chemical molecules that you sort of craft to address something. Um, the second problem that you can have is that the FDA has actually been trying to encourage people to go back and do clinical trials that were uh, on old generics that weren't done when they were approved because, it, you know, until really the second half of the 20th century, we didn't do the kind of testing that we now think of as normal. Um, and so in order to do that, they've been awarding people exclusivity. And so you can get exclusivity on a drug by uh, going back and doing these tests that weren't done before. The third category is biologics, and that's something that that Mr. Golston just talked about, is that it's um, 
a biologic is different. It's made by, say, a bacteria. You biologically engineer a bacteria. So there's a lot of problems in that field. Um, one is that it's actually just harder to prove that your drug is identical, what's called a biosimilar. So instead of just saying, like, look, this molecule, this molecule, they're the same, right? You actually have to prove um, you, you're never going to get exactly the same molecule because biological entities don't work that way. So it's more complicated. They're more complicated and expensive to produce. It's more complicated and expensive to produce it safely. Um, there's all sorts of issues with like contamination. You're growing living things. It's just a different operation. And that means that biologics... So the insulin problem is is several fold. The first is that we think of, oh, insulin, it was invented in 1922. It should be dirt cheap. But the insulin that we're using now isn't the insulin that was invented in 1922. In 1922, they're extracting it from, from animals. urine, yeah. Right? Um, now we're do we're getting bacteria that that have that produce it in vats and 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 all of these complicated things. Similarly, with antibodies that are used to treat cancer and so forth. Now those are better means to get the insulins way better than it was. Right, it's closer to what human beings need. We have more options for if people have allergic reactions and so forth. Right. Um, but the downside of that is that it's new. It's actually a pretty novel product. It's hard to get new players into the market because it's actually quite difficult to do correctly. Um, and so there's not as much competition as we would like. But even there, I think over time, you do see more people coming in. You do see we're still wrestling with the right regulatory regime for that. And I wouldn't say we've hit it. But it's a different problem from drugs. The thing about drugs, just pure drugs, is like, look, in 20 or 30 years, they're or a hundred years, right? If you invent something like Lipitor, you could be saving lives for a thousand years. And most of the people in that group will be living in the time that is not now. So any drug innovation that you cost yourself by driving down the return on investing in pharmaceuticals so low that no one wants to do it, or so low that fewer people want to do it, means like all of those people for decades and centuries in the future are losing out on that drug too. That's not true with every single class because there's antibiotics, which lose effectiveness the more they're used, as we all know, antibiotic resistance. But in general, I think the, the, the welfare calculation is so clearly in favor of inventing as many drugs as we can. That, that said, you know, there's things like we have to make sure they're effective and so forth. But overall, I think that the problem with that is that that's not how our budgeting cycle works, right? Any if you if you put in a new bill, right, that costs like a million lives a year in 2100, that just would not register in any government account. Politicians wouldn't care about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly the CBO, Congressional Budget Office is not going to put that in their calculations, but it really matters. And so thinking about a long-term market structure, my worry has always been my biggest worry with with national healthcare has always been that the incentive for bureaucrats, the incentive for politicians, is to cut prices as low as possible to please voters now, even if that means that many of those voters will die of something that we otherwise could have cured, and that their grandchildren will be much less healthier and long-lived than they could have been because we were because politics is so short-sighted about things like that. So this is the classic seen versus unseen effects, right? And so we the things that we see are you know right in front of our faces, and you don't see the effects um, that that are maybe much more important. That much having been said, and we could have a whole podcast just we about drug pricing. <laughs> I actually um, spent a lot of time studying the insulin issue, and oh, did I have you? a very different oh, take okay, on it, okay. but I'm not going there. All right. Now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'd love you to, keep, but we'll... You keep teasing. <laughs> you want to disagree with me and then not disagreeing. Is that the point There's, of a podcast? <laughs> uh, 
a 10-hour podcast? Yes. <laughs> and you give us the, the one-minute summary. I promise not to answer back. Uh, I've had a lot of experience talking with you. <laughs> Is that a promise you're sure you can honor? <laughs> okay. The one-minute version. The one-minute version on insulin is that, yes, what we have now is miles away from what we had when things started a century ago. That's absolutely correct. What, in my judgment, is not as correct is to say that what we have now is dramatically superior to what we had 15 or 20 years ago when a lot of the innovation improvements had already been realized. And the problem is that it is, it is very, very difficult, regrettably, to get access to that intermediate zone where the price-to-efficacy ratio, in my judgment, is extremely favorable. And so where I agree with Megan is that we need to look at our regulatory structure anew to see that it strikes the right balance. But the operative word in that sentence is balance. And what I object to in the drug company strategy is that every time you propose to take away something from them, they react as though you're taking away everything mm -hmm. from them. Mm -hmm. And that is a fraud that has been perpetrated on the American people for decades. And things are now out of control, and the American people are rightly angry about it. And you don't have to be a brain-dead populist to think that they have a point. Okay, I would like to add just one thing, because in general, I'm very, very sympathetic to Megan's point of view um, on, on this. But I, I do note that the drug companies have um, gamed the system and spent a huge amount of money and time making these look-alike drugs that they have to get through the FDA, but that require very little R&D on their part. It's just a tiny tweak to an existing medication, and that's that's very profitable. And so you get, you know, and, and I'm not just talking about things like, um, uh, like you know, uh, what's the, the uh, thing for men? Uh, but anyway, the little blue pill. I'm, I'm not talking just about Viagra. I'm talking about uh, you know all all the statin drugs and the rest of it. Um, so there's, there's some of that going on as well. Um, and it is, it is, um, it takes up the time and, and attention of the FDA um, to, uh, uh, to, to do all that that they could be devoting to. So, and I would, I would just also add, well, we don't want to all beat up on you, but I'm going to beat up a little <laughs> bit. That, you know, I think the analysis no, I'm is a on good her one. Side. I well, I am basically on your side, and I'm basically for free markets and the market being the best arbiter. But when you're talking about people 100 years from now, what you're really saying is also, if, if we're talking about markets, is the people who are alive now are paying for the people who are going to be uh, living 100 years from now. And, and that's why, at least in terms of the way markets work, May you know may not be the best way right. to think about it, um, because we're we're subsidizing people. You know, uh, if market incentives work, you're supposed to get something from it, and you're, and so we're talking about subsidizing somebody. You but know, we do our great get stuff from it. We get the reason we're so mad is that these drugs are great. If these drugs sucked, they wouldn't be called. 
charging $100,000 for them, and we wouldn't be mad about not being able to get them. Right? But not every – I mean, there are times and, – and we'd certainly do this with orphan drugs where, you know, when you sort of have to allow for the fact that a market is never going to work because you're going to not have enough of a market to be able to pay for the drugs. So. And I would note that I think that antibiotics is one of those areas too where we really haven't um, – we haven't figured out how to price for – and I think that the government actually needs to be way more involved in that market because it's failing. Um, but let me let – me, You mean we're not coming up with new ones. We're not coming we up with new ones, ones yeah. right? And, yeah. and it, this is because the way – if you have an antibiotic, because unlike every other drug, right, it will stop working over time. So if you have an antibiotic, if you're an infectious disease doctor, what you very sensibly want to do is never use it, mm-hmm. right? You want to mm-hmm. store it until other stuff fails. And the problem is that because of the patent life – Right. Then it's there's actually a, a company that just invented a new antibiotic and just went bankrupt because what everyone did was take their antibiotic and stick it on a shelf. They're like, thank you very much. We'd be happy to use this in 15 or 20 years when other drugs fail. And they're like, but then I won't have a patent. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's actually a problem I think we, we need more government interference with. But let me actually like, if I may, yeah. make the case, first of all, for Me Too drugs, because Me Too drugs, there look, there are as I say, like Nexium and Zegrid, where like I tweaked a molecule. But actually, believe it or not, it's still pretty expensive because the most expensive part of, of um, drug development is not like research, basic research. That's cheap. What's expensive is putting it in a bunch of patients and get and testing to see what happens. And they have to do that with all their new tweaked molecules. They can't just tweak it and then be like, well, it's probably pretty similar. They have to run the clinical trials again. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what's happening is not actually in those cases – it's not actually that uh, they are are sort of just deciding, well, this isn't going to cost us much. The difference is there's less risk. They basically know this molecule works, which means they have a pretty good idea that a molecule that is very little different from it will also work, right? And But often also those things are offering real value. So a good example would be Ambien and Ambien XL, right, which is their extended release. Mm-hmm. Right. It's actually useful if you were someone like me who has the kind of insomnia where you wake up at two in the morning. Mm-hmm, <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. That's actually a really good product, even though it's just really a little tweak. You're putting a coating to make it absorb slower. But the other thing is that for things like there's nine statins on the market, I would say two things to this. It's first of all, like this is a really weird market where everyone's like, we need only one statin. Would you say, like, it's a real problem that we, only, that we have more than one kind of car on the market? No, you wouldn't. Because, in fact, people are different. Drugs react differently. The, you know, one statement works for someone. A different statement works for someone else. I know this from personal experience, which is that the blood pressure medication I was on made me so ill that I thought I was dying. I thought I had congestive heart failure. Um, and then they were like, ooh, your, your blood pressure is a little low. Why don't we uh, take you off that and put you on something else? I was like, this is great, right? So – that's one thing. But the other thing is that those drugs tend not to get developed. It's not like the same company. Like someone looked at Lipitor and was like, oh, maybe I'll do Crestor now. What happened was that we did basic research. We identified a target. And then a bunch of companies all raced in and said, OK, I'm going to try to find something to hit that target. And there will be a company that's first to market. But if you've already spent all of this effort and you're like six months behind them, you don't say, oh, well, I guess I'll just give up. Instead, you bring it to market, and it's actually great because now there's competition, and competition lowers prices. Where I think the real issue is is that doctors are not good at thinking about why are they prescribing you this modest twist, right? Doctors don't put it in the work 
they will prescribe whatever the newest thing is without really taking a lot of time to look through. But that's all right, Megan, because our insurance companies will say no to whatever is the newest thing. <laughs> but so you know that, what? That's, that's the I'm going to defend them. <laughs> we could have a whole show on this. No, because that you know what they're doing is they're like actually looking at research and, and saying, OK, well, is this actually more effective than that? No. Okay, you can have that instead. Now, there are cases where something works for most patients, but on all patients, and I'm not saying the insurers always get the right balance on that. Right? But I don't in know fact, how I you ended up on this reason podcast. Right back to a health policy podcast. I would never yeah. have been asked to be on that. <laughs> I'm sorry, David. Let me, I will stop talking. I'm passionate. I'm passionate yes. about pharmacy. Yes, you are. It's so important. <laughs> well, it's. Um, uh, I will confess that uh, that I I moved the conversation in this direction by mentioning insulin, which is important to me since I have a son who's a type one diabetic, and so uh, this uh, it's a certain. The, it's close to the bone for me too. So um, I don't know. Maybe maybe our listeners uh, have their own issues and and will be enlightened. So anyway, let us move on um, to uh, the final thing, which is actually kind of linked. And and uh, we've gone a little bit long, but but I do want to get to this because it it has to do with the way the Democrats are running their campaigns and the way Trump ran his. So um, at the moment. President Trump and, and Republicans are saying this is the greatest economy in the history of the world and so on. But when he ran, uh, a, a big part of Trump's uh, pitch was that this uh, country is terrible. It's rigged. That the you know, It was standard populism. The little guy doesn't stand a chance and, uh, and so forth. And the Democrats, um, uh, to one degree or another, uh, campaigned on similar ideas. Some of them are much more populist, like Elizabeth Warren. But um, but everybody, you know, seems to agree oh, Kamala Harris dropped out. But I mean, one of her big themes when she was running was that, uh, well, you know, they say the economy is good, but people are actually working two jobs and blah, blah, which is false. I mean, the number of people working two jobs is actually very, very low. And, you know, the the unemployment rate is 3.5 percent. The median household income in the United States is about 61 K annually which is much higher um, than comparable industrialized nations like Denmark or Germany or the UK. Um, and um, so I guess my what I want to probe a little bit, and uh, unfortunately this could be a topic for a, a whole podcast, but let's just do a few minutes on um, whether we agree that the um, – that politicians are touching on something? And is it something that is a legitimate concern of voters? Or is it something that's more manufactured? Um, and I'd be curious, how, you feel. how do how are people doing in America? Is it really the hellhole that uh, the politicians Well, it's certainly not it the hellhole. But that doesn't mean that <sighs> everybody is doing well. And ironically, from my point of view, some of the people who are doing the worst are the people who are supporting Trump. And his, you know, good economy hasn't necessarily helped them. Uh, you know, lower middle class, lower class uh, whites uh, are not doing well. You know, they're dying younger. They've got opioid uh, epidemics. The jobs they used to hold uh, are disappearing and they're not getting the training uh, that they need for new jobs. Um, so, you know, it's not doing equally well for everyone. I think everyone 
in our circle, people who are educated uh, are, are doing well, and education, for the most part, has paid off for people. But uh, there are people who are not doing well, and um, I, I think it isn't I think it is important to sort of note that because I think that kind of grievance on the part of some voters in some areas uh, has helped propel Trump. First of all, picking up on Linda's last words in some areas, one of the most important defining features of the current malaise that we have which is not particular to the United States, you can see versions of it in the UK and throughout the yeah. West, is the geographical segmentation of economic growth. Almost wherever you look, mm -hmm. the largest metropolitan areas are surging ahead, and the smaller towns and rural areas are falling back. There was a remarkable study out of Brookings, if I'm allowed to tout a study from my own institution just a couple of days ago, uh, suggesting that almost all of the growth in high-tech jobs had been concentrated in a handful of cities. Uh, and uh, my son, a venture capitalist, was so concerned about this that he went on a couple of tours organized by Steve Case to try to get you know, to try to deal with the problem of venture capital deserts and what to do about it. So you have it's not just this is not just something you can read off the income distribution tables. This is something with a geographical component so that entire communities feeling that they're feel that they're being left behind or falling behind. It's not just pieces within separate communities. That creates a particular particular kind of consciousness. The second point is this, and this is something you can read off the income distribution tables. In my reading of American history since the Second World War, we have felt best about ourselves when we were all growing together at roughly the same rate. And that was one of the defining features of the roughly speaking quarter century after the end of the Second World War. And it was also one of the distinctive features of the 1990s, which is why a lot of people look back, at least on the economy of the 1990s, with something approaching nostalgia. You can go back and check for yourselves. And so uh, I do think that in both of those respects, uh, the fact that some, some kinds of income classes in society are growing much faster than others – and also because the geographical differences which had been narrowing in the 40 years after the Second World War have been re-expanding ever since, that is contributing to a very real problem. And we shouldn't just point a finger at politicians for making up malaise where it doesn't exist. Megan? You know, I would say a couple of things, but I think just to expand on that point is if you think about what the world looks like in 1970, um, you have vibrant small cities which at this point barely exists, right? And and all of the it's like this gravitational pull. It's not just that um you know the rural and exurban areas are doing badly. It's that the the gravitational pull of everything that there were regional economies that were anchored by small cities and those regional economies are are having much of the kind of prosperity sucked towards the coasts uh to Chicago uh to a much lesser extent. Um, and to a couple of regional hubs like Nashville and Raleigh-Durham. And Texas. Um, right? And Texas, yep, Austin. Um, but because of that, right, it wasn't just the economic world. If you think about what the media world looks like, right, you've got a daily newspaper 
It's all local and it's driven by physical constraints. You've got a, da- a local television station and that is driven by the fact that you have to actually like you will run into mountains or you'll run out of radio wave distance. And so everyone is in a market which is filled mostly with people like them, right, um, in some broad ge- geographic sense at least. Um, and so people have the sense of a real community that as the media has collapsed, everything is being pulled the media has been pulled to the coasts along with everything else. And so this is given – I mean one of the really interesting things to me is that Republicans really feel like they're powerless and they hold the Senate and the presidency, <laughs> right? But it's not insincere and it's because uh, Democrats totally dominate cultural institutions and they have managed to give all of those Republicans who were in the hinterlands getting all of their news and all of their entertainment – from the coasts, the sense of being com- continually microaggressed. Mm. Um, and so I think that that is absolutely real. But I think there's another thing too, which is that the pace, the, the amount of insecurity, and I actually do, I, I'm going to blame the media again, simply because our industry is collapsing. And we feel terrified all the time. And like, so when we cover the news, the news is actually really good, right? The economy is doing really quite well. Wage growth is steady and strong, right? It, Especially it, for people at the lower end of the distribution. Yeah, at the low end of the, end of the spectrum. But we're panicking, not unreasonably. And so that's how we cover everything. We can't really believe that it's that good, right? There is also the thing that people hate Trump and they would really like there to be a recession before the, before <laughs> he comes up for re-election. Um, but it's also true, I think, that even when things are strong, there is a sense that everything is in danger, right? Even people I know who have quite steady jobs um, and who are, you know, good incomes and so forth, they feel like it's so fragile. Like at any point it could be taken away. And that's kind of low-level panic, I think, infects most of America. It infects rural people who are worried about, you know, insecurity, commodity prices, rural devaluation. It infects people in old manufacturing hubs, even if their factories are still there. It infects middle management and the professional class. Everyone is terrified that their little bit of the pie could at any moment just go away and they wouldn't know what to do with themselves. And that sense... It, and that feeds into so much. It feeds into this ferocious educational competition that the upper middle class is having where they will beggar themselves to get their kids in a good stool, school district and a good college. Um, and the wealthy will do worse than that. Yes. Buy their way in. The wealthy will keep their Look, I think that on a moral level, certainly photoshopping your kid onto the crew team is worse. <laughs> but on a practical level, it's a lot safer. Okay. I think none of them could have ex- anticipated going to jail for that. <laughs> so, like, I think it must have felt much safer than, say, deciding not to save for retirement and buying a house that you can't really afford and sort of hovering always on the edge of bankruptcy in order to get your kid into a good school district and then pay for college, which is something I know a lot of middle-class parents have done, right? I know people who are basically doing this now where they have nothing and God knows what they're going to do when they hit 65. They better hope their kids want them to live with them. Um, And like that is a real – that level of insecurity is something that didn't exist uh, as much. I don't want to overplay this because you know what? The other thing that is true is that we all think – that our parents must have had this wonderful world of ease and plenty. They had these amazing pensions and so forth. And it's nonsense. The number of defined benefit pensions like that, first of all, were not that generous, most of them. And second of all, peaked in 1980, um, as did union membership. 
so there is a, a, a rose-hued glasses effect on all of this, but it is also true, I think, that people genuinely do feel more insecure than they did in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, I'm, I'm going to have to say I'm a little skeptical. I think life has always been insecure, and uh, we all die, and we are all subject to illness and tragedy and accidents and job losses and... Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it w- even if you look at the percentage of the population that used to work in the big factories and so forth, it was never a majority. I mean, most people didn't get their work that way and um, had to sort of catch as catch can and they fell into something and then they had to do something. I don't know. I, I, I'm not so sure that we're living in a more insecure time than we ever did. But Damon, um, what, what's your contribution? Well, I mean, I think that um, there's a, there's a concept in sociology uh, called liquid liquid modernity, which has to do with the experience of modern life involving change, which we're all familiar with. But there is a perception, I think, growing among people that the economic insecurity that uh, Megan and others have noted uh, it seems to be accelerating or deepening. That somehow. Shifts in industries and uh, regions and where industries and and different ways of life are rooted are changing very quickly, that the skills you need to acquire to succeed in something change very quickly, multiple times over the course of a life. Cultural changes are happening very rapidly. Uh, the the uh, acceptance of same-sex marriage, which then very quickly is followed by transgender right movement, um, and other other perceptions of change lead, I think, people to feel very anxious, to feel as if uh, things are always changing, shifting. That. Nothing is stable. Now, people can handle, psychologically speaking, uh, quite a lot of change as long as some things are perceived to be static. But if everything seems to be in flux and then the experience of the Internet and technology and social media increases the perception that everything is constantly moving and changing and the news cycle is fast and confusing then even if in our daily lives of getting up in the morning, going to a job and and doing routines, going to the store, coming home, going to bed, even if that remains largely stable, people will kind of go through their lives with a higher anxiety level than they normally would and look for some source in the world to give them ballast or some kind of stability. And I think that a lot of our politics is driven by by this perception that things are out of control, that we just no one is no one is actually running it, that there are forces we we don't really uh we can't master and that are mastering us. And this leads to a kind of generalized longing for something to fix that, to kind of give us the either reality or the illusion that actually someone, namely us, can do something to keep it under control. Well, that's the way I think about things. (laughs) Good description. (laughs) Um, Thank you. All right. So one and all, let us uh, close with our um, observations or um, agreements, disagreements with something that we want to highlight. Um, Linda, we've broadened it now to... um, 
to just things we want to draw attention to. I will go first this time. I will um, cite the movie Harriet, uh, which um, I, I enjoyed. I think there are certain ways. It's about Harriet Tubman. Um, certain things about the movie I would not have done that way. I particularly took umbrage at the fact that they took a shot at the great Frederick Douglass, as if he were some sort of um, a character who lacked courage of his convictions, which is completely false. But anyway. Um, what? The, yeah. Yeah. That was a small matter. But anyway, they did just a little sort of dig at Douglass. And they don't even say it explicitly. It's just a character that looks exactly like him and he's standing there. But anyway. Um, but I, But my point is just, I just wish that there were more movies made about historical figures that we don't know enough about. Harry Tubman was a great topic for a biopic. I'm so tired of seeing movies about World War II. I mean, I've seen a million of them, and some of them are wonderful and great. But there's a lot more to history than the Second World War and the Tudors in England, okay? I really think we need more movies like Harriet that introduce us to topics that uh, are underappreciated. Well, I'm going to, my contribution is going to be about the report of the inspector general because we didn't talk about that. And I have to tell you that I came away after listening to him testify feeling that I have to be careful and all of us who are conservative anti-Trumpers need to be a little bit careful not to simply join the other side's team because I think the inspector general's report did explore and expose some very, very serious problem in the FISA process. And that uh, simply to say, well, you know, there was, um, you know, no political bias and the there was a proper predicate for opening this counterintelligence uh, investigation. I think that's true in both instances. But I think much of the report and much of his testimony had to do with the FISA process. And I, for one, want to say that it, neither the Democrats nor the Republicans quite got it right in presenting this. And while I certainly don't agree with what Bill Barr said, I also think that we can't simply jump up and down and say, well, this inspector general report shows that everything went hunky-dory during uh, the investigation of Donald Trump because it didn't. Linda said almost word for word. <laughs> What I was planning to say. <laughs> oh my god! Me too. Right. We share a mind over and, Oh yeah. my god! And I had a slightly different take yeah. on the IG report, but only but, slightly. But 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 the report is actually quite clear on a number of points. Indeed, it's quite clear on all of the points that it dealt with. The problem is that some of the points point in one direction, some of the points point in the other direction. And no part of our political system has a remaining – any capacity remaining to deal with that kind of complexity. The report either has to be a total exoneration or a total condemnation. And you know, there's no room to say, yes, the initiation of this process rested on a predicate that was acceptable by the standard by, – by the, by the standard norms – of opening an investigation. And on the other hand, the attorney general, rather the inspector general, found 17 different violations. These weren't itty bitty violations. These Fabricating were, emails. These, were, mean, big, these were big deal violations of the sort of due process that you hope would protect all of us 
from a state that can run amok very easily. I think we're coming around to the Reason magazine. The <laughs> and uh, thanks but, for listening today to the Le- Reason podcast. <laughs> and I, you know, and I was, I was stunned by what I read and dismayed. And I hope that if I, I'm sorry that it was introduced into a week where a nuanced view of the report was impossible. Yes, I thought Democrats embarrassed themselves trying to bail out um, the, this investigation, and then I thought Republicans have been embarrassing themselves, embarrass themselves as like as a libertarian as they have been for years by like being suddenly surprised that prosecutorial abuses might happen, and only suddenly caring when it happened to one of them. In fact, like this is the sort of thing we should have been worried about all along. And look, I get that like there. Are, there are national security problems. We're going to need some sort of process to deal with them. But I think that libertarians have been screaming for a long time that this process was broken and Republicans are only now listening because their own ox got gored. And I think that that is a huge problem. Sometimes that's what it takes. Damon, you get the last word today. Uh, well, I, I, I guess I will only add uh, that I agree with everything that's been said about the IG report, the Inspector General's report, and I'll just point uh, listeners to Eli Lake, who was a guest on here several weeks ago, uh, wrote a very good piece about it, making many of these points with lots of good quotes from the report. Uh, that was in Bloomberg Opinion. The title is The FBI Inspector General's Report Has Bad News for Democrats, Too. Mm. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you one and all for listening to Beg to Differ. And uh, if you would rate and review us, that would be terrific. You can also um, write to us uh, and uh, uh, spread the word. Uh, it's in, it, We've gotten off to an incredibly fast start, and we have a lot of very eager listeners, and we'd love to have more. So thank you all.